Hello and welcome to the podcast Cuckoo. My name is Alex and today I'm going to be speaking with Chloe. Now Chloe's going to tell us her story about her mental health journey and in particular her experiences with mental health services. Some trigger warnings for today's episode. We will be talking about psychiatric inpatient units and suicidal behaviours. So if those are triggers for you, please take care. Now, Chloe and I spoke over Zoom, so you may notice that the quality of this recording is not great, particularly in the first five minutes, but please hang in there. It does get better. And as I get better at podcasting, the quality of the sound will get better. So thank you for bearing with me. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Um, I was born in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And I moved around quite a bit. Like I ended up at about like eight primary schools. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. And so now I live in Melbourne, Australia. And yeah, I am 23 at the moment. I had a pretty stable childhood. Like I had my parents were together, a stable income, just did usual kind of kid things. I don't know, I just remember it was hard. The first two times I moved. I didn't mind making friends, like that wasn't too much of an issue. But the third time I moved, my brain kind of went, oh, like, we're going to move again. I shouldn't make friends. So I just sort of would isolate a bit. I'd play with other kids, but, you know, if someone would ask me, who's your friend? I'd be like, I don't have friends. I'm going to move again. So that's sort of what was going on with that. So it did take a while for me to make friends because I was constantly like asking myself am I going to move and then asking my family am I going to move and it didn't quite happen so probably around like you know and was when I was like okay I'm going to stay here let's make friends I have kind of looked back and you know I did have within high school a few like traumas I didn't realize were traumas because you know the word trauma wasn't really thrown around a lot my family were quite unlucky with housewives. We went through about three due to electrical faults and a candle being left on. Um, and each of those times, I was the one who found with my parents were at work until late and I was looking after my sister. One of them was late at night and it was in my sister's room. So like I smelled her to go get her out and everything. So, yeah, like nobody used the word trauma. Everyone just sort of was like, oh, that's so sad. Like I can't believe you went through that not addressing sort of the mental impact that would have on someone. I just remember I was speaking to my teachers about why I didn't have my school uniform because I'd been in the house. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so sad. I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, and I'd be like, yeah. And then, you know, they'd move on from that. They'd just be like, okay, well, you just got to buy a new uniform and the two of them are like able to wear this and we'll have an exemption. So it was very much a short-lived sympathy pretty much. And I remember I'd go to a few friends' houses and they loved candles and they never turned off PowerPoints. So I'd wait until they were asleep and I'd turn off all their PowerPoints and blow out the candles. Um, At that point, I just thought it was sort of normal. I was like, oh, I'm saving these people. like So nothing bad happens. But looking back, that was definitely rooted in fear. I think it was towards the end of high school where I started to notice I was sad more than happy and I was like okay like this will just go away when I get older like it must be something I learn and then I you know obviously didn't just go away so then I would 
turn to the internet and be like, what's kind of going on? And that's sort of where I started learning about mental health. My family never really spoke about it. It wasn't really spoken about at school. And now my friends seemed pretty happy with us and have really heard about it. In my mind, I'd just turned 18. I was like, why am I still sad? I don't understand what's going on. And I think that thought of like, there's something wrong with me. Nothing's going to be able to fix me just spiraled and instead of just going to therapy like my family didn't understand it either until I reached a crisis point and was hospitalized that year that was sort of my step into the mental health system so I did attempt to take my life and was found by a family member and taken into the hospital I was 18 I'd been having those thoughts and that was also contributing to the what's wrong with me like why would I want to die like there's nothing going on for me. There's nothing wrong with my life. So then it sort of just escalated. And then, yeah, I think it, it was an impulsive decision, but I'd had those thoughts for quite a while. So because it was my first time going to hospital, they thought it was a great idea to put an 18-year-old in an adolescent unit with kids that were like 12, 14, 16, things like that, which I found very weird. I was like, why am I in this environment? Like, these kids are so young. Shouldn't I be getting, like, a different form of help? And I guess it was quite frustrating because this psychiatrist had only known me for a week. I was only in there for a week. And he gave me the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, which I didn't understand. He gave me, like, a sheet with minimal information. So I left that admission, like, what the heck is going on with me? What is borderline personality disorder? How do I fix this? And, yeah, I was quite lost for a while. There wasn't any referrals to any sort of therapy. He just suggested it. He's like, I suggest you seek out therapy, no referrals. So found that quite useless, to be honest. And what did you think about that diagnosis of borderline personality disorder? Like, did you then kind of Google it and find out more? How did that sit with you? Um, I definitely did Google it. And it freaked me out because, like, oh, my gosh, this is a personality disorder. It's my personality. Does that mean that this is all that I am? And then you'd also come across the stigma of BPD is dangerous. They are manipulating people. And I'd just be sitting there, I'm like, I, I don't do that. Like, I don't understand why I have this diagnosis. Why do people think that I'm going to hurt them? Or why do people think that I'm going to manipulate them? I just didn't understand. And it just made me not want to talk to anyone about it because I thought I'd get judged. It was really difficult to find any sort of evidence that it was the disorder during this treatment. Like, I couldn't really find that. And, you know, like, I think the brain works in the way of, like, you'll see the negative more than the positives. My brain was just full of all that negativity. So it was really hard to believe the positive things I saw in there because I'm like, well, if there's more negative than positive, then it must be a negative thing just gone from like a space like a year ago of, oh you know this will go away with age it's okay everyone feels like this too suddenly like I have a personality disorder that I am now believing will never go away mm-hmm. and that you know everyone's going to think of me in such a negative way that you know it was such a big change and I didn't really know how to deal with that and something I found with that is you know when a diagnosis is put on your file. It is so hard to get anyone to take it off your file because nobody looks into the, 
oh, was this a proper assessment? How long was the assessment process? Is this correct? Everyone, like I've just found even to this day that when there is a diagnosis on your file, everyone just believes it is done. From what I remember, I only saw him twice. The first time for the intake assessment and the second time was to discuss the DPD and that that meeting did involve my parents, but they didn't they didn't really know what to do because for them, like, I didn't tell them about how I was feeling everything. So the first time they noticed something was wrong was their child trying to not be here anymore. So they were trying to adjust to that. And then they got this diagnosis, like, okay. And they didn't, I think they just kind of shut off a bit. So like, I don't know what to do. Um, and just kind of took a step back because, you know, I was 18. I think they were just kind of like, I can't deal with this. I'm sure she can figure it out. I think it just, you know, I think it was kind of a trauma for them too, to be honest. People sort of think trauma is this massive thing, like world issues or someone has died, but like there are big traumas and little traumas and people just don't seem to get that. I went to a service called Headspace and I think I was there for maybe like five sessions and then they said to me, your case is too complex. Like we mainly work with, low-risk patients or, like, for them, the one, the person I was seeing said that they mainly specialise in depression and anxiety, so then they sent me to a mental health service called KIMS, which is, like, I guess the best way to explain it is, like, it's a mental health service linked in with the hospital and it's free, but it is very, like, overcrowded and stuff because, you know, there were lots of people in crisis, so it was very hard to see any sort of psychiatrist and seeing the therapist was difficult. So for me, it was just like a conversation about what was going on, which was nice to have someone to listen. But looking back, it was like I wasn't getting therapy. There was no module of therapy to address the issue. It was more just, what's going on for you? How are you feeling? How's your week been? And, you know, then if I'm saying I'm really struggling with thoughts, it would just be like, okay, do I need to put you in hospital sort of thing? So in my mind, it was like, if I'm struggling, they're just going to put me in hospital, which is not what I want. So it was quite frustrating for a while. It just felt like I wasn't going to get the help I needed and that my life was just going to be like, you're having a bad thought, you go to hospital, and that I wasn't just going to live a life with, you know, having a job, having friends, just doing normal things. It was hard and, yeah, if I think about it, it was quite scary because, you know, I just, again, was having these thoughts of, like, well, I've got this diagnosis, there's so much stigma around it and also the fact that there wasn't any sort of treatment happening, my brain just automatically assumed this is incurable or there's no treatment for this, you just have to deal with it. And looking back, I think that if I had a bit, had the access to the treatment I was needing earlier, I wouldn't have ended up with so much trauma around hospital and just the system. And also, like, the fact of the matter was, like, my diagnosis now is not BPD because I did not have BPD. So it's quite frustrating looking back that I was given a diagnosis within a week, which is then attributed to not getting the help that I needed. It got to a point where I was self-harming and attempting on my life very frequently. So then I was going in and out of hospital. And at one stage, 
I'd gotten so depressed and low that I started to hear like voices in my head that I thought were me telling me to hurt myself or something bad would happen. But then I opened up to my therapist about that and instantly was put in hospital against my will for the first time, which was very scary because you sit there and like, oh, they can't do that. Like I, I don't want to go, but legally they can make me go. So it was quite a scary introduction to the mental health system in that sense. It was hard because that was me going into the adult system, which is very different to the adolescence. There is a lot more people there that seem like very unwell and can be quite scary and traumatic to see that. And, yeah, like they made me stay there for three months. That was the first time I sort of realised how traumatic and bad the psychiatric units can be because I was just there surrounded by it for three months on this order, getting treatments that I didn't want because, you know, no one was communicating again. Like it just reminds me of my first condition. Nobody would communicate about why this treatment is happening, how it's going to help. That was when they first put me on medications, but they put me on so many that I just wasn't able to think clearly, I the days just sort of went past, I was so tired. And then also after the first month, they decided that I should be doing electroconvulsion therapy, which I don't even know how to explain that. I guess it's just this procedure where you go under and I, I think they put you in an induced seizure that's meant to do something with your brain or something. And again, with that treatment, I didn't get any information except for a worksheet and that was frustrating because because of all the medication I was on I wasn't in the right mind to be receiving that information especially on a worksheet like I could barely see how am I supposed to read and I didn't even know where to start with questions so I was just sort of like oh my god I don't know what to do this is so scary sort of thing I've been to I think two tribunals which is like a meeting with a external service that has like a member of the public I think a mental health worker and a psychiatrist but each of those times this is where I felt it was unfair like I was so like medicated that I couldn't even think of reasons why I can't have this treatment or how I can do it in the community so I just felt like at such a disadvantage because there's this person who's not on medication who has this degree telling these people about why I need this. And then there's me not being able to think properly, just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I'm tired. I just want normal therapy. And then obviously not winning those tribunals because I didn't have the information or knowledge I needed to even contribute, in my opinion. A few years later, I was told that you can have, like, an advocate or you can use, like, a legal aid in those meetings, but I was never given the information. So. It's frustrating now knowing all these rights and things that I had and knowing that I didn't get the choice in having them because I just didn't know about them. I was just very tired, but I think for the first few sessions, I'd have a really sore body, I'd have a really bad headache, and I just, yeah, it was just hard because I was so out of it and then sore and having headaches. I just, I was miserable. Like, I was just like, what? How is this helping me? Like, 
if this is what's going to help me, I'd rather not be here sort of thing. It was just really making everything worse. With the psychotic features, they did get better, but with my mood, it just got a lot worse. I was put on a community treatment order and had to continue ECT in the community. So that, again, was the first time I'd ever had a community treatment order. So I would go into the hospital once a week and get the ECT and then have to be monitored and go home. And then I'd have my appointments with the Kim's team. But when I came out, I wasn't even informed that I was going to be working with the intense mobile outreach team, which is a part of Kim's but for very complex cases. So not only did I just go into this unknown treatment, I've come out to a new person being like, hi, I'm going to be your therapist now. And I'm just like, okay. So yeah, it was just hectic. I just sort of got to a point where I was just empty. I was like, this is my life now. I there's just nothing like it was just there's nothing left. I'd go to these appointments and just say what they wanted to hear and just yeah, I don't know. I just felt like my life was just going to be mental illness and that that was all that I was. It's crazy to look back on like it's quite like it's sad. I just sort of look back and I'm like I just wish that I'd gotten the right help. I just don't understand why that was so hard. They decided that it wasn't working and basically just started doing more sessions with therapy because with the team I was in, you had access to crisis appointments and phone calls during the week. So it kind of went to having phone calls during the week and therapy and seeing a psychiatrist more regularly. So then they sort of reduced me from these medications. And I think at that point I went down to a antidepressant and a sleeping medication and I definitely felt clearer and stuff within myself but I still just wasn't getting the therapy that I needed I was just getting like check-ins and asking about my day and a lot of mindfulness stuff which I know has helped a lot of people but when you've had it thrown at you when you're in a crisis you just think to yourself like how is having a bath or a cup of tea going to help me from wanting to unalive from that first admission, it just became a cycle of self-harm or attempting on my life so frequently that I was just in the hospital more than I was not in the hospital. And then it was just the level of empathy I was getting from professionals would just lower and lower and lower because they'd just be like, you're doing this for attention or if you wanted to, you would not be here right now. And I was cold like a revolving door patient a lot and I was just thinking, I was like, well, then help me like nothing's work I'm not doing this for the fun of it I don't think any adult is like yeah I'm gonna try and like hurt myself all the time it was just frustrating and you just see like when you're in the wards and stuff you'd see the empathy they would show others it may it probably wouldn't have been as hard if that same attitude was towards everyone but when you're seeing like these other patients getting like support care like pet talks, empathy, and you're sitting there and you're like, well, what's going Like, I don't get it. Like, why Why am I the bad guy? So it kind of goes back to that, okay, well, this diagnosis is making everyone think I'm a bad person because I was trying so hard to get rid of this illness and I just was like, I don't want to be here if everyone's going to see me as a bad person because for me, like, 
I always tried to like be compassionate to others and kind and I always thought that that's what I was but then this doctor who's meant to in my mind know what they're talking about and how to fix me is, is telling me I have this diagnosis that the world seems to think is bad or, or I'm trying to hurt people and manipulate people like I didn't want to live knowing that at that stage I just felt very hopeless I was just so like honestly felt like it was turning me into like a very angry person like I I do not like the feeling of being angry it's something I've never enjoyed I don't think anyone enjoys it but I just I absolutely hate it and so I would push it away so often and then I would just have these times where I'd yell and scream I'd like why is this happening to me why aren't you listening to me I hate this and then that's when they would sedate you or put procedures in place and then in your mind after that, you're like, oh, my God, I yelled at them. They're going to think I'm this terrible person, whereas other people could yell and scream but not be seen as the bad guy. At that point in my brain, I was like, I can't seem to get out of this cycle. I can't seem to unalive. So then I ended up turning to substance use, and that was how I would get through. I would just be like, I feel sad use a substance, I feel angry, use a substance. So it just got into that cycle of, you know, everyone wants me to be alive, so this is how I will do it. Because, you know, in my brain, I was like, I've been trying everything for a few years now. No one seems to be able to help, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's not the best option, but, you know, everyone wants me to be alive, so just drugging myself up a different way. It was mainly marijuana at the start, but then I just started getting in with the wrong people so then I started um, using methamphetamine which was not great with the the weed I felt calm and I could just go to sleep and my brain was like sweet I can just sleep all the time and then when I started using like the methamphetamines it was like oh my gosh I've got all this energy I'm so happy I can just do random things so different ends of the spectrum but I was like I have options I can either be really happy or I can just go to sleep in my mind, they were helpful for maybe like six to seven months, but then I just got in so many situations that were just so like traumatic for me and then also just against who I was as a person. And then at some point, like I remember coming home because my mum wanted me to visit and they had no idea I was using any sort of substance. They just thought I was getting better because they were like, oh, my gosh, she's not in hospital. She's doing all these things. And then I had, like, an issue with my heart while I was with them. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And the ambulance came, and they're like, have you used any substances? And, I, and my parents are just sitting there, like, no, no, she hasn't. And I was like, and I, was like I, I have. And my parents just broke. Like, they were just crying and upset and, like, where did this come from? So then after that, I was sent to rehab for a few months. And, yeah, that was not fun, but definitely needed. It wasn't too bad it was just more we would go to groups um we would get breathalyzed in the morning to make sure we hadn't drank any alcohol and have drug tests like every two days we were living in like units that there was like two people to a unit so it wasn't too bad but it was you know hard because I was just you know hard to like be away from everything and then that's when all the you know the thoughts come back and the feelings and you're just like oh my gosh I forgot how bad this was, I forgot how intense this was and makes the thoughts of using a lot stronger.
there were two times because I was in a different city for that rehab and I ended up having to use the crisis team a few times because I was like, I can't deal with this. I'm struggling. I can't do it. And, yeah, they just weren't very helpful. But I somehow managed to get through that, which I am very proud of myself for because I was like, good job, Chloe. It was all against you, but you got through it. So, yeah. But I think another big thing was I spent my 21st birthday in there, which I think was very sad. Like, I didn't like that. I was, you know, I was always so excited about my 21st birthday. I was like, oh, I can drink everywhere now. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm stuck in this facility and it's, you know, I'm turning 21. It was just definitely a big shock to the system. So actually, like, when I finished rehab there, my uh, drug and alcohol worker in that facility was like, there's this other rehab I think would be good for you, but it goes for a year. And I was like, oh, um, I don't know. She's like, look, I think like with everything happening with your mental health and stuff, I think you just need a bit more time. And I was like, well, that's a whole year. And she's like, I know, but you've been struggling for a while. And eventually I was like, okay. And I was transferred there. I lasted two weeks. It was absolutely terrible. You were doing like farm work and you had to like, fill out this slip to talk to someone. So, like, if you wanted to talk to the workers about something, you filled out this slip and they'd get back to you within a few days. And I was like, what is this doing for me? This is doing absolutely nothing. So I ended up just leaving. I wasn't supposed to, but I just left and found someone. And I was like, hey, can I use your phone? And went home. So that was not great. I think that's also another reason I don't want to use them. Like, I don't ever want to go back to that place. I just sort of got to a point where I was like, I need to find what's going to be helped. I was just like, you know, I've tried this, I've tried this, it's not working. So I ended up finding a community on Instagram, like a mental health community. So I've had that account for a while and I it was sort of like a journaly entry thing and I started to get quite a few like recovery accounts and I was sort of like, okay, like I'm not alone and I think that kept me going for a while because I didn't really have a lot of friends in like the real world because of all the things like going into hospital and rehab was very hard to maintain friendships and yeah so that definitely kept me going for a while and it also made me realize that I want to use my voice to help people going into the mental health system blindsided I want to be able to tell them like tips and like what they deserve and you know just whatever I can share that's going to help someone so I think um with Instagram it is more like a support thing and then it was a very private account um because I was very much like oh this is so personal like all my mental health stuff and on TikTok I've sort of just been like okay like I'm gonna try and spread awareness and just you know just make it make mental health known because I just I couldn't find any of that now. I'm, like, so grateful that there is, like, TikTok around so then, you know, people can look at that and sort of relate. But on the other hand, I'm just sort of like I wish that they weren't glamorising a lot. We're, we're getting there. There's just a bit of work to do with that. At the moment, I've landed with another, like, intense mobile outreach team. I think I've been with three of them. So I'm with this one, and this therapist seems really good. She listens and we are actively trying to find the therapies that are going to help. 
but the wait lists are long and everything. And there's also just negatives around. Like I still got with hospital, they've made this rule like the past year that if I attempt on my life, I can only be in the psychiatric unit for one night and then I leave. But if I seek out the help, I can be there for two nights, which I'm trying to understand the logic. I'm like, okay, I get that you're wanting to teach me to reach out, but, you know, you guys aren't there on weekends and, you know, I'm not always going to know how I'm feeling. Like it could just come on suddenly like it has in the past. So I've tried to talk to them about that, but they just were so stuck in that way with the treatment teams and the hospital that it's like, no, we're just, it just feels like, no, we're not dealing with that and this is what's happening. It's improving, like I'm getting somewhere with my therapy, but then crisis care, just it needs to be improved for so many people. In their words, they're like, oh, this will teach you to reach out for help before you hurt yourself. And I've explained to them many times, I'm like, I understand the logic of that, but it's just such a risky move because, again, you're not available on weekends. You know, you're not always going to be able to pick up the phone and also sometimes some attempts are planned and some are just impulsive and, you know, we don't really have control over that sometimes. So, yeah, it just feels very risky. And the last time that I was in hospital, which was earlier this week, uh, because I'm with the intense treatment team, they come to the hospital to assess you and she's come and she's like, can we try this? Can we try this? I'm like, look, if I thought that X, Y, and Z was going to work, I would have done it. And I had done it. And she's like, why aren't you working with me? I'm like, look where I am right now. Do you think I made this decision rationally? Like, do you think I'm in a mindset that I'm going to be able to go home and do all my strategies that I've been trying for weeks that has ended me up in the hospital? She's like, well, you've given me no choice. I'm putting you on the assessment order and you're only staying in there for one night. What is the point of this? It's just ridiculous. It's like a punishment. You hurt yourself and you're being punished for that. Other diagnoses that aren't BPD, people look at them and be like, yes, they're not in the right mind to be making this decision. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so hard for them. But with BPD, it's like, no, you you made that decision. You want the attention. It's just ah, it's frustrating. And I try to explain like crisis to people who haven't experienced mental health as like, you know, the flight, freeze or Fawn responses sort of thing and then they sort of kind of get it they're like oh okay so like there's this intense reaction to something and I try and explain it to them like that I'm like except instead of me physically running away my brain is sort of like I need to do this to run away or it's driven by emotion like nobody wants to be there like why why would anyone want to be in a hospital bed why would anyone want to be waiting in the emergency department like hours on end and why would Someone who has been treated so poorly in those situations want to be there again. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand how anyone would think that that makes sense. You know, you get so used to a certain level of, I don't even know, like care, but I wouldn't even call it care, like judgment or just trauma, constant trauma. And then it's just your brain's like, this is normal, but it's not. It's nowhere near normal. It's just terrible. It's just so hard to be able to reach out. Like you just sit there and you look back and think back on all the ways you've been treated and the way things have been handled. And you're like, why would I put myself through that? Like for me personally, my brain says I would rather not be here than reach out if I'm in a crisis because 
Like it's like saying to someone, would you rather be tortured for 10 days straight or just have the job done? I'm pretty sure most people would be like, I'd rather have the job done and not have to deal with it. I've had to push and like, well, can you refer me to a service that does something like DBT or acceptance and commitment therapy or anything, just something that has a model. And it took so long. The other day I had a assessment with a service called Spectrum here in Victoria and they work with CPTSD, which is my diagnosis, and BPD. And it was so validating having that assessment because he's like CPTSD and BPD are completely different things. And that was the first time I've heard that, the whole time I've had the diagnosis switch or the diagnosis. And I'm like, why did it take so long for this to happen? And he's offering like group therapy and one-to-one work, but of course there's a wait list. So I have to wait six to 12 months. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've got this treatment, but I have to wait. So it's good and bad. It's been difficult because you don't get access to your hospital notes unless you put in like a letter requesting them. And, you know, I haven't done that because I'm like, that's not really what I want to do. I just want to know what diagnoses are on my paperwork and here in Victoria with Centrelink I'm currently on the disability support pension due to side effects from some of these treatments and I gave them the diagnosis of CPTSD and then they've come back to me with feedback of oh no the BPD diagnosis is still there even though my professional has said to me they changed it on the paperwork so it's been very hard to get the proper diagnosis and to have that put on my file so that I'm not getting incorrect treatments. Still got this like thought of shame and guilt because like I've recently started dancing again, which I absolutely love. But you know, I think something people don't realize is you lose sort of a social aspect. You think in your brain, I can communicate with people that are struggling because we can relate with that. But then I get in these situations where you know, it's just like, oh, where are you walking or what do you, what do you do with yourself? And I'm just like, um, what do I say? <laughs> it's just like it's so weird how much mental health it impacts like every part of your life. From my knowledge, complex PTSD is generally diagnosed when you've had repetitive traumas or a trauma that is repetitive, if that makes sense. And In my experience, it just means that I've had so many traumatic events that, you know, I don't, it's sort of the difference between like PTSD and CPTSD. From my knowledge is that PTSD is like this one really big event that has led to, you know, symptoms of like mental illness to contribute to like how they're like living their day-to-day life and their struggles. But from my knowledge, it's like I haven't, had the chance to work on a trauma because another one follows, another one follows, or I've got this one trauma that isn't just a one-off thing, it's a repetitive event. So now I'm in this umbrella of like, I don't have time to work on this trauma because another one's happening. So that's why the treatments are completely different for PTSD and CPTSD. So it's been um, quite difficult to understand what's been happening with that, I guess. It's hard to know, like, this is what was explained to me the other day in the assessment. I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. It's a bit frustrating, but, you know, it kind of is what it is. At least I know where I'm going from here.
a big part of that is hospitalization. Like I really try to not scare people away from hospitalization, but I also just don't want them going in blindsided by just how traumatic it can be. So like the amount of times I've been in hospital, every single time something really massive and traumatic happens, and then I try to digest that and then, you know, another trauma comes along. So I had the fires in my life. I've lost friends in my life. Some just friendships didn't work out, but I've also lost quite a few people to suicide due to like the community I'm in on Instagram. And yeah, just the hospital traumas, the treatments, like the ECT trauma, and also just the fact of with these traumas comes with flashbacks or triggers or memory loss. And then, yeah, it follows with like the anxiety, depression of things and also, I find instability in mood. So, like, it's really hard to regulate your emotions because you're struggling with these thoughts and just remembering all these things that have happened. You just kind of feel like you can't get a break from your mind. I don't know. I still, to this day, I'm like, am I going to recover? Like, it's very difficult. I can do this treatment. And then there's also the fact of, you know, different treatments work for different people because I was offered two treatments with spectrum with the service I'm hopefully going into and I'm like what if I choose the wrong one and I've just wasted another year and you know you just I'm getting exhausted and I'm so tired like so I'm just like trying to figure a life out and I'm like I'm still struggling like I just sit here and like why like why has this been so difficult like I don't understand like I wish I had known that I could have got a second opinion and gone and got that second opinion in the community And another thing was more information about this diagnosis that you just diagnosed it with. One sheet of paper that explains it is not going to explain the symptoms or what causes it or, like, treatment. The way that the psychiatrist explained to my parents what was going on, they just bombarded them with information. And it frustrates me because I feel like if, they had done that in the right way and explained to them how they could support me. I um, I might have had their support, but they were just freaked out. So I just felt like that one hospital admission really set me up to fail. My sister actually said this to me, like, maybe last year. She's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I feel like I can only talk to you about my mental health, which absolutely broke my heart because I'd I don't care if I'm experiencing all this stuff. I want her to have the normal childhood or, like, something good. And then I also sort of just – I felt guilty, like, that I had made her have mental illness. And I don't know, it's just so much responsibility on me that I just – yeah, it just felt like I wasn't having open communication with my family and that they just didn't know what to do, so – it's it's been hard, but they they try their best in other ways to help me move or give me advice on like jobs, but it's just the mental health aspect that's sort of missing in that. When I was in high school, I studied like a vet dance course and I fell in love. And then, you know, my parents were working all the time. I didn't have a job, so I couldn't afford to do dance classes. And then about six months ago, my friend said to me, because she used to dance all the time, she's like, oh, they're doing open classes here. It is in the city, but it's so worth it. And then I did one class and I was like, oh, my God, like I feel so happy. And I hadn't felt that in years. There was just this different kind of happiness. 
like I'd found like a passion. That's honestly what keeps me going. And I'm very grateful I found that. Like it was definitely saved my life. I explained that to my dance teachers and I just don't think they get the extent of it. Yeah, I just, I always say to them, like, your class literally saved my life. Thank you so much. So weird. Yeah, but it's great. What advice would you give to a young person who, you know, maybe they've been not feeling great for a while, but they're not really sure what to do in regards to mental health um, help or treatment? What advice would you give somebody like that? I think if they're in, like, school, like, trying to find a teacher that they trust and just explain, like, I'm not doing well, like, I don't know what to do. And then if they feel comfortable, like, because I think most high schools, at least in Australia, have, like, a school counsellor, just going into them and knowing that it's private, like, they can't tell anyone else what's going on unless it's a safety risk to yourself or others or there's abuse in the home. And just talking to them and just being like, hey, like, I feel really sad. I don't really know what's going on. Could you just help me, even if it's just with a worksheet or if they're willing to open up a bit? And I think with, say, if you're an adult, trying to, instead of going straight to the internet, like, it's definitely a helpful resource, but just not for the more personalised questions. Searching up sources, therapists in your area, mental health services in your area, and pursuing those but a big part of that is I recommend having questions for those professionals about you know their specialties how therapy looks like for them how they're going to help with how you're feeling and yeah and also it can just be like personal questions of like what things do you believe in are you religious are you LGBTQI friendly things like that you have every right to do that which I wasn't aware of because that'll make it so much easier to access that help And then I guess the first time going into hospital, just knowing your rights, like asking for an advocate or to speak to the peer worker there and specifically saying, I would like to know my rights. They legally have to give you the documentation and legally have to answer your questions around that document. I think also just knowing you're allowed to advocate for yourself because I didn't know that at all. Like I just thought that these people have these, all these qualifications that whatever I say is wrong, whereas now I realise that, like, I'm being treated badly. I can speak to someone, like, you can go to, like, say it's in a therapy practice, you can go to the receptionist and say, I'd like the number of the complaints line or to fill out a form, just so that you know that you've got control and power in that situation and that that's you don't deserve that treatment and it's also not tolerable, so, yeah. You don't click with the person, you know, you're just going to sit there. You're not going to take the advice. It's not going to flow. You're not going to be able to trust or open up. It's just going to feel like a chore. There's just so many parts of therapy that people don't realise. A big one as well is, like, people just think, oh, I will go to therapy and they will fix it. No, like, therapy is a stepping stone. They give you the tools and you use it to have life the way that you're wanting to see it because if they're going to fix you then everyone would be the same like that's just not how it works (laughs) just for people listening your mental illness is not who you are like it is just a part of what's going on for you 
And, you know, there's a difference between, like, finding relatable themes with your mental illness and then just making it your whole identity. Because I did that for so long, like, it would influence the way I dressed, the way I spoke to people, just every single thing. But I just want to remind you, you know, recovery is possible and you will get out of this you know, identity crisis, I guess, or even just these beliefs about yourself that you are nothing more than a label because you're so much more. Like, it would be fun to discover it. But the people that are on my page and stuff, I love hearing about their achievements and what they want to do with their life because, like, that's awesome. Everyone's different. And mental illness is not your identity. (laughs) Something that I still struggle with a bit is, the way that recovery is portrayed on TikTok and things like that is that suddenly you're so happy, everything's going so well. But I just want to say to people, like, if you're seeing these things and you're saying to yourself, why am I still sad? Like, why is this taking so long? I feel like I'm doing absolutely nothing in my recovery. I just would say, look at the small wins. You know, you've gone a few days using a really good coping mechanism. You're basic things like you're getting into a routine with your hygiene because that can be really hard or just doing things that you like recovery isn't just going to happen in one day it is a process you've got to remember that you've been struggling with your mental illness for so long you wouldn't say to someone who's broken their leg okay walk on it and you should be fine it's been like a week a lot of that I think taps into you know how we talk to ourselves and trying to have I guess a bit of validation and compassion for the journey and the ups and downs and that we don't need to be perfect in that journey either and have it all sorted out. We're still human at the end of the day. Yes, a thousand percent. I want to say a big thank you to Chloe for sharing her story today. It takes a lot of courage to speak out and I'm sure you all agree that Chloe's story is really valuable for all of us to hear. If you'd like to get in touch with me or with Chloe, drop me a line via the website in the show notes. Catch you next time.